Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This edition of the podcast includes conversation highlights from the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Christian Media Convention in Nashville. I had the chance to chat with American pastor Andrew Brunson, who was held captive in prison in Turkey before his release was secured. You'll be hearing him share about his experience. And I spoke with Bob Lapine of Family Life Today. He shared with me about navigating transitions taking place within the ministry and the radio program, including new hosts and a new leader, while continuing to pursue the biblical vision of strengthening families. Then it's Jim Garlow of Well Versed, sharing about the ministry work in which he's involved, sharing God's truth at the United Nations, in the nation's capital, and in Israel. And Hormoz Shariat spent some time with me at NRB in Nashville. He is with Iran Alive Ministries, sharing about how God is working to bring Iranians to Christ. And on this edition of The Intersection, filmmaker Andy Irwin spoke with me recently about a new film in which he and his brother John are involved that is centered on the life story of Christian musical artist Jeremy Camp and the love story with his first wife, Melissa, who passed away soon after they were married. Finally, Lee Warren is a neurosurgeon who has faced the dilemma of seeing the future of a patient with a fatal condition, yet trying to convey hope. He's also attempted to hold on to hope in Christ in his own experience, get his perspective coming up. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Andrew Brunson was an American pastor doing ministry in Turkey when he was arrested in 2016. He was released in 2018, and the U.S. government had intervened strongly on his behalf. He's the author of the book, God's Hostage, A True Story of Persecution, Imprisonment, and Perseverance. And he visited with me at Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. From that conversation, here is Andrew Brunson. I was held in several different places, and uh, part of the time was in solitary confinement. That was very difficult for me. It was just me in a bed (laughs) and uh, tremendous isolation. Uh, then I was put into an overcrowded prison cell. There were, it was built for eight people. There were over 20 of us, uh, and you, know, you never leave your cell. So it's 24-7 in that crowded environment. It was very uh, tense. And uh, the most difficult thing for me there was that uh, I was isolated by my faith. Uh, everyone I was with throughout my imprisonment uh, was a very strong Muslim. I was the only Christian. And so I really came to see how important it is to have fellowship with other believers, uh, being completely cut off from it. So it was one of the things that 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 terrible isolation, even in crowded conditions, uh, was one of the things that broke me. So when you talk about being broken, tell me just a bit about the the condition that that you experienced after that. I think you mentioned you'd been in prison for about a year when that occurred. Well, uh, actually, it was the first year that I, I broke repeatedly. I lost 50 pounds or so in the first months of imprisonment, and uh, just uh, psychologically, spiritually, I really went downhill. I felt abandoned by God. I did not have a sense of His presence or strength or feeling of grace, and this really surprised me. My expectations had been different in that area, and so I, I had a lot of questions and doubts and as I said, I was completely isolated from other believers, so I had no one to pray with, no one to encourage me, no one to correct me when I was thinking in the wrong way. So it, in my second year, 
there was more of a change when I began to uh, fight for my relationship with God and more consistently was able to come to a point of surrendering my will, saying, not your, not, not my will, but yours be done. Earlier on, I would say, whatever your will is, I don't want to be in prison. And I came to a point where I would consistently say, God, if this is serving your purposes, I don't want to be here, but I ask you to give me the strength to endure because I want to be faithful to complete whatever assignment you have for me. And doing this consistently uh, brought me to a place where I could receive from God more easily, and he began to strengthen me. So you really began to see your time in prison as an assignment. I did come to see it that way. I thought I had an assignment to prepare for harvest in Turkey. And as my time in prison extended, I came to see that, well, there was a worldwide prayer movement that started. And millions of people actually began to pray for me. And that prayer, obviously, it was benefiting me, but I believe it was for uh, much more than that. Uh, that God was using that prayer to prepare for a great move in Turkey. And so I began to see that my being in prison was actually serving God's purposes for the great harvest that he wants to bring. So tell me about when you received word that you were actually going to be released from prison. So let me say that didn't make it any easier. It just gave some meaning to it. I still wanted to be back with my family, but but uh, I did see that God was involved in it. Um, so I was uh, taken to court for my fourth court session, and I was. Uh, they suddenly moved to convict me, and they dis- they did convict me of terror crimes, which is ridiculous. And then uh, they sentenced me to prison. I thought, okay, here I go back to prison after all this pressure. It just hasn't worked, and I'm going back to prison. But then suddenly the judge said, okay, uh, you're free to go. And so what they did was convict me, sentence me, and then release me uh, while uh, this was appealed. All of this was obviously a political process. It wasn't really, it was masquerading as a judicial process, but it was, this was being decided by one man. It was uh, the president of Turkey was the one making the decision. Uh, but God, when he had uh, accomplished what he wanted to through my imprisonment, I believe that then he used all of the prayer of God's people and said, it's time for Andrew to go. And I rode this wave of prayer out of Turkey. From the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, that was Andrew Brunson. Continuing now with the Intersection Podcast is Bob Lapine, co-host of the radio program Family Life Today. He talked with me at NRB about navigating transitions taking place within the ministry and the radio program, including new hosts, David Ann Wilson, and a new leader, President and CEO David Robbins. Family Life is continuing to pursue the biblical vision of strengthening families. Here now is Bob Lapine. It's really great. I've known David Ann for more than 30 years. They are good friends. They're, they're great teammates. So we, we go back a long way. And when we were looking at the transition, we knew a transition time was coming for Dennis. Um, and, and we were saying, what's the best way to do that? Uh, Dave and Ann, because of their passion for marriage and their effectiveness as communicators, we talked to them and said, are you interested in, in being part of this team? That, that doesn't, as you indicated, that doesn't mean that Dennis and Barbara are now silent. In fact, Barbara is going to be a guest on Family Life Today in the coming weeks. She has a new book that's coming out that's a great book on prayer for, for women. Um, 
and and Dennis is still actively involved doing speaking and writing and projects that that he's engaged with and then David Robbins the president of Family Life who stepped in when he stepped into to directing the organization he recognized that uh, he could not effectively direct the organization and be the, the new host of the radio program simultaneously. He had to pick one or the other. So David appears from time to time with thoughts about the things we're talking about. We want our audience to know him. He's a good leader. He's a, a, a solid, uh, pr- providing good direction for the ministry. And we want our listeners to know who's, who's behind the organization. But we also want them to know we're a team, uh, whether it's Dennis and Barbara, Dave and Ann, me, David, the others who we have on. Uh, we don't have a, a corner on the truth. We just know where the truth is, and we can point you to it. And and we want to introduce people to all of the different teammates because they're great teammates. And speaking of teams, I know at one time Dave and Ann both were doing ministry in the professional sports world, and also they're involved in their church in Michigan, or at least they they were. So they're very they're very busy people. They are. They are busy people. They wrote a book last year called Vertical Marriage, and they've had a lot of opportunity to speak and write. There's a new video series they just produced that's the Vertical Marriage Study. Dave continues as one of the pastors at a large church in Detroit. In fact, he comes to Little Rocky and Ann come to record Family Life Today programs. They come in once a month. They're there for four days. We record a month's worth of programs in the time that they're there, and then we uh, we they go back home. It's it's the way to maximize our connection, our ability to uh, to utilize them, and we're so grateful for that. And you, you mentioned his involvement for 33 years. He was the chaplain for the Detroit Lions football team. Uh, we like to. We like to point out to him he's the losingest chaplain in NFL history, and he's looked it up, and he actually is. Their team lost 300-plus games while he was the chaplain for the team. But the profound level of ministry that he and Ann had with players and players' wives and players' girlfriends, um, introducing many of them to Christ, discipling many of them, getting them pointed in the right direction in, a, in a, an environment that is not always nurturing to faith, so for them to be there and be involved, uh, they, D- Dave and Ann, our evangelism and discipleship is bone deep with them. As much as they love marriage and family, which they do, that's their first book they wrote, evangelism and discipleship is a, is a co-passion for them. So to be able to lead people to Christ and then help them grow in their walk with Christ, they're going to do that till the day they die, whatever job they're doing, because that's just who they are. Well, Bob, as far as the the ministry of family life, this has been a a time of transition. What would you say that God has shown your ministry as a result of of this particular season? I think we've we've seen clearly that um, that times of transition, I think about times of transition in the Bible, times of transition are a challenge for God's people. They're a challenge for leaders. Uh, You think about Solomon replacing David. You think about... Uh, the, the classic situation of Moses being replaced by Joshua and Joshua looking and going, how can I do, how do you lead after Moses, right? And God comes to him and says, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Don't be terrified. Don't be worried. I'll be with you. And so you just recognize transition is inevitable. We're all transitioning. Nobody stays here forever. And it's important to plan for it. And it's important to embrace that and, and recognize then how do we make sure that 
the work of God continues beyond our generation. What can we do, not so just so that the work of God flourishes in our generation, but what can we do to lay the groundwork so the work of God can continue to flourish when we're home with him? Bob Lapine here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the ministry by going to familylife.com. Well, Jim Garlow heads the ministry called Well Versed. He also wrote a book a number of years ago with the same name. At NRB 2020, he shared with me about the ministry work in which he's involved, sharing God's truth at the United Nations, in the nation's capital, and in Israel. From that conversation, this is Jim Garlow now. Well, it shows how badly our kind of work is needed. Absolutely, <laughs> because, yes. Because it is inconceivable. They need 60 votes on those, I believe. Yes. And didn't come close to that. And that is jolting, jolting in contemporary America that we could have such barbaric acts supported uh, by so many senators in this particular case. And the House of Representatives, where we minister primarily, has equal challenges and problems. Uh, the good news, if I can flip it to the positive news, is we probably have more, say in the House of Representatives, for example, we probably have more solid believers, Jesus, serious Jesus followers, than perhaps ever, or at least in all modern history. In the midst of all the horrible stuff that comes out of the House of Representatives, there are a group of tremendously godly, sacrificial people. But people don't realize, they always say, throw the bums out and they're paid too high. This is not true. 20%, probably at least 20% of members of Congress cannot afford a condo, an apartment in DC and sleep on the sofas in their offices. The place where we meet with our Bible study, that member of, of Congress sleeps there in that room and gets it all ready and fixed up for us when we arrive at 7 a.m. in the morning uh, for a Bible study. Mm. So there's a, there are a lot of people who are really seeking God, hungry for God, following the ways of God. They're very beat up in that place. Some of them are, 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 are quite frankly discouraged, but they're standing strong in the midst of horrific gale force winds of evil that, that come out of them as depicted by what you just described. And when you talk about biblical principles of governance, so yes. you have a representative that goes to Washington, D.C., wants to live a godly life, be a godly man, a godly woman, sensing that God wants to use them in this circumstance. What do you say to them to say, this matters? These principles that we're teaching about biblical, biblical concepts of governance, this is important. How do you keep them? encouraged and really moving forward when it would be so easy to, to be so frustrated. Well, part of it is a ministry of encouragement, a Barnabas ministry. But let me just kind of flip it and say, rather than what I say, what some of them have reported to me. Uh, one member of Congress says, I cannot believe, this was back when I was still pastoring Skyline, I cannot believe that your church at, at that time has so sacrificed so members of Congress can have what we have in that worship service on a weekly basis and that Bible teaching that you provide. At that time we were doing it on Wednesday evenings. Now we do it on Wednesday mornings. Uh, another one almost almost was in tears one day. He was close to tears. He was a congressman from one of the East Coast states. And, and he says, I cannot believe you brought worship into the Capitol. And he looked at me and says, you brought worship into the Capitol. <laughs> and he was so deeply moved. And another one from uh, a congressman from the state of Texas just recently that I had never met before. And he says, oh man, I can't tell you what, I'm, I'm, that, that book, we, we used my book, Well Versed, uh, which lays out the biblical uh, foundations for 30 biblical topics. So I cannot tell you what that means to me. We, by, by the way, Bob, we not only do that in the Congress, but at the United Nations in New York City. We have weekly Bible studies in 
and the United Nations for employees of the United Nations. Then we have monthly meetings for ambassadors. There, there are 193 member nations of the United Nations. We have met privately, I say we are a little team, well-versed. Wellversedworld.org is where people can find out about this, but our little team has met privately with 91 of the 193 ambassadors at the United Nations. Now probably of those we've met with, probably about 10 are believers and the rest are not. Many of them are Muslims and such. But I'll, I'll give an example of the, the, the encouragement we can, I, I said to the ambassador, for example, from a Muslim country, I said, sir, I noticed in your country, you have 40% unemployment. 40% unemployment is devastating to your people. Your people are hurt, you know that, they're wounded. He says, yes, I know that. I says, you know what we do? We bring biblical principles of economic prosperity for a nation, what God's pattern is for a nation to enjoy economic prosperity so that people will do well. Can I have the privilege of praying for you right now? And, and so it opens the doors. What guy who's from a nation with 40% unemployment does not want to understand principles that would help his people? And so God's word is so good God was so incredible, and when he formed the Bible, he not only put the Bible together in a way that addresses personal needs, family needs, church needs, but the issues of civil governance, that if a nation will follow him, that nation will be blessed. We have an exciting meeting, a ministry, exciting word mm. to bring well, to people. Jim Garlow here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website, wellversedworld.org. Well, I had the opportunity at NRB to talk with Hormoz Shariat, who is the founder and president of Iran Alive Ministries. And he shared with me about the exciting things that God is doing to bring Iranians to Christ. With some insight into the work of the ministry, here is Hormoz Shariat. What I'm going to share is shock you and your listeners, viewers, because this is not what you hear in the news. Iran, as a nation, has rejected Islam and is open to the message of the gospel. Islam is experiencing its greatest defeat in its history in Iran today. And did you know an independent research has shown Iran has the fastest growing evangelical population in the world. So Iran is stepping away from Islam, open to the message of the gospel, and many by thousands are coming to Christ. And when we go to Jeremiah 49, that's another shocker, are you ready? Iran will be a Christian country. Eventually, because Jeremiah 49, 38 talks about God saying, I will set my throne in Elam. Elam is completely inside land of Iran today. I will set my throne in Elam. And I can see that happening fast and soon. So our vision is that this can happen in one generation. It's a, not an impossible dream. It's a possible dream that Iran will turn to Christ as the first Islamic nation to Christ in one generation, which is about 40 years. Well, we know there was the Islamic Revolution, 1979, of course, the, the eyes of Americans transfixed on the hostage crisis there in Iran. And the perception is of this brutal regime that the mullahs or the, the ayatollahs are in charge and they have their thumb upon the people. They are not allowing the Christian message to come in and that the people are totally sold out to Islam. Now, there are news stories that we've seen about Islamic people, I mean, Iranian people coming into the streets, perhaps with the intent of rising up against the government. But it seems like that, you know, you'll hear about that for a few days and then it just 
kind of goes away. There's, you are, are, well, you're not implying, you are actually stating that there is a backstory here. So tell me how it is that Christianity is spreading in the nation of Iran. Well, it didn't happen overnight. It took 40 years. And Islam, Iran is the only Islamic uh, country that led by clergy for 40 years. And so the people of Iran have seen Islam in action, Islam in the laws, Islam implemented. So it took them 40 years of uh, spiritual journey to come to a point. It didn't happen overnight. It's not emotional-based. It's very deliberate. After 40 years, people have looked at Islam and say, this is not from God. This is not from God. It's not. It's beyond, oh, I don't like Islam. It's beyond that. Actually, the young people in Iran are saying, if we want to have a future for our country, we need to get rid of Islam. So there's a militancy against Islam happening. So Iran, and of course, it's a work of God, you know. Um, he has removed their blind sights. The, the spirit of Islam over Iran, which the Bible talks about, Prince of Persia, uh, that, that dark spirit has been defeated. Iranians are not like other Muslim nations. Iranians are questioning Islam. In Islam, we are not allowed to question Islam. Iranians are questioning Islam, comparing, and they're free to think. Did you know uh, in Islam, you're not allowed to even question what you're reading? It's blasphemy. You may get even lashes if you ask, well, why does this verse say this? So there is a supernatural work of God setting the captives free in Iran. Those captives in the hands of our enemy who is using Islam to bring many into captivity is a supernatural work of God. And another aspect of it, Jesus himself appearing in visions, dreams, and miracles to them. So he himself is working there too. In addition to what they're looking at Islam doing, they're seeing Jesus. And he, he appears to them. He heals them. I have so many stories of visions, dreams, and healings uh, happening all the time. It becomes normal to the Iranians. Hormoz Shariat from NRB 2020 in Nashville. You can learn more about the ministry by going to iranaliveministries.org. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and find it in the Media Center. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community that is updated weekly. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can... Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app as well as a variety of podcast platforms. Continuing now with this edition of The Intersection, filmmaker Andy Irwin of the film... Continuing now with The Intersection... 
Filmmaker Andy Irwin of Kingdom Story Company spoke with me recently about a new film called I Still Believe, in which he and his brother John are involved. It's centered on the life story of Jeremy Camp, the Christian musical artist, and the love story with his first wife, Melissa, who passed away soon after they were married. Here now is Andy Irwin. The thing that excites John and, and me and then the rest of our leadership team with Kevin and, and Tony um, at, at Kingdom Story Company is uh, that we really believe that faith uh, is not a genre, it's an audience to serve. Mm. And so uh, that allows us to think outside the box. Instead of just being a, kind of a one-size-fits-all faith film, uh, we can do stories that, hey, it's, it's, a sports, it's a sports movie, or it's a, it's a love story, or it's a comedy, or you know, there's a there's just a number of things that you can do genre wise that still honors the things that move us as Christians. And so, uh, as we stepped into this, uh, you know, I did I I was nervous about stepping into the music world again right after we finished. Uh, I can only imagine. I, I I called Bart after we got done and I said, you know, I feel a little panicked. You know, <laughs> you had you had your first breakout hit was I can only imagine, and it just so happens because of you, it was ours as well. And so uh, what did you do after you wrote that song? And, uh, you know, how did you kind of find the next one? And he said, don't try to fight to make the next I can we imagine. Find the next story that moves you. And so we started looking, and somebody said, you need to sit down and talk to Jeremy Camp and hear his story. And so when we sat down to hear that story, um, John and I interviewed him and Adrian. And he got the 100-yard stare about an hour into the, the interview. And you know what it's like when you get an interview that all of a sudden goes somewhere special. And and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. You could hear a pin drop. And it was the most beautiful love story I'd ever heard of him meeting his first wife, Melissa, uh, in college as these wide-eyed kids. And then her finding out that she has uh, a pretty advanced-staged uh, uh, ovarian cancer. And then she said, if one life is changed by what I go through, it's worth it. And then he said, I want to marry this girl. And he walks through it with her. And it is the most beautiful love story I've heard in a long time. And then at the end of that, I pulled in Adrian to the interview, his wife now. And I said, how can you listen to your husband talk about another woman for three hours and not have a hint of jealousy? And she looked at me and she said, let me be very clear. I'm very protective over Jeremy and Melissa's story because it was a story that changed my life. It was something I needed to hear. And then I looked at my brother at that point and I said, John, you're going to think I'm crazy, but that's our next movie. And uh, to kind of bring it to life and to see the cast that assembled and how it turned out, uh, I, it's going to catch people really off guard when they walk into the theater. It's an experience they're not going to expect and they're going to love it. Well, and as you think about Jeremy's story and really finding out early in their marriage that Melissa essentially had a terminal disease and walking through that, elaborate on how you were able to really highlight that element of the story as Jeremy stood by her and loved her even as the end of her life was approaching. You know, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that it, it takes on is the idea of, you know, uh, what happens when uh, good people have to go through hard things, and, and where is God in suffering? And, uh, and so the idea of Jeremy, until the day that she passed away, fully expected her to be healed. And there are those beautiful stories that have been told of people that do experience that kind of healing here on uh, planet Earth. 
Uh, and then there's those that the end of the story is answered a little bit differently. But I think Melissa's story kind of delves into both of those things to where it hits it from two different sides of the coin uh, that shows the beauty and the artistry in both of those moments of life. And so it is a, a gorgeous journey. Uh, uh, and then, and then being able to then incorporate that with how it inspired Jeremy gave him his voice and song and uh, what, what brought that music to life, uh, for him. And then how that touched, you know, so many people as he told Melissa's story with the song, I still believe. And so, um, uh, it was exciting to see that story come to life. Andy Irwin here on the intersection. Find out more about the film by going to IStillBelieveMovie.com. The film is scheduled to be in theaters on March 13th. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Lee Warren who discussed some of the content of his book, I've Seen the End of You, a neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. He's faced the dilemma of seeing the future of a patient with a fatal condition yet trying to convey hope and has attempted to hold on to hope in Christ in his own experience. Here now from that conversation is Lee Warren. There's a brain tumor called glioblastoma multiform, Bob, and that is a type of brain cancer that is almost 100% fatal. So if you get that diagnosis, the average survival is about 12 to 15 months, and almost nobody lives five years, and, and really nobody lives 10 years. And so as I went through the early phases of my career, I would encounter people with this disease, and I began to be able to forecast things that I knew about them, the things that were going to happen to them. I knew when, you know, if I see that scan, I know what the tissue is going to look like. I know what the conversation is going to sound like, and I, I could just see in my mind all the things that would happen to that patient and then ultimately when they would die. And, and I got to where I would say to myself, I've seen the interview before I ever saw the patient. I, I thought I knew everything that was going to happen. But at the same time, although science told me and my experience told me that, I have a faith. And as a Christian, I had this problem because the Bible tells me to pray without ceasing and that God can heal all our diseases and that you know the effective prayer of a righteous person avails much from James 5. And so I had this issue where I, I knew I was supposed to encourage my patients to fight and keep their spirits up and that that was better for them. People who hold on to hope, they you know they have better outcomes even if they don't survive. Their, their families do better. Their quality of life is better. They spend less time in the hospital. So I needed to doctor people even if I couldn't save them. And so I had this, this sort of integrity issue where I, I knew something from science and I believed something from faith and it was this big gray area in between. And that studying that stuff is where I started thinking about writing this book. You had your very own hope struggle in the loss of your your teenage son. So tell me about yes. what you faced and some of the the inner struggles that you encountered in the midst of that. Well, the real irony here is that I was starting to write this book to to write a book about all the things I'd learned about helping people hold on to their faith when they encountered hard things. And I was, you know, thinking that I was going to, to educate people about how they can deal with life's adversities uh, right around the time our son Mitch died when he was 19. And so we had this traumatic and unexpected, unexplainable loss of our teenage son. And we were kind of shattered, as you might imagine, it's that you know, losing a child is... I can't imagine anything worse. Um, 
And so I recognized that a lot of the things that I thought I had known about how people can hold up in hard times really sort of I was incorrect about it. I was just kind of plunged into this darkness and I began to understand what Isaiah was talking about when he said that he was in the furnace of suffering. You know, we were we were just devastated. And so we had to, as a family, we had to decide if we really believed the things that we had always said. And for a while, I wasn't sure. I was really awash in doubt and even to some degree wondering whether I believed in God anymore. And that was one of the frustrating things for me, Bob, because as a neurosurgeon, when I look at the nervous system, it makes me have more faith that there really is a God because of how well designed and how intricately were put together. And so I came to this place where I got really mad because I couldn't stop believing that God was real. But at the same time, I didn't understand why he would let something like that happen in my family. And we were trying to be we faithful people and, and we lose our child and it didn't seem fair. And I had to come to this crux of a moment when I said, either the promises in the book are true or they're not true. And if, if they're not true, then I don't have hope of seeing my son again someday. And the only thing that got me sort of able to move again was this notion that if there really is a resurrection, that I might get to see Mitch, that I will get to see Mitch again someday. And that promise has to be true. And if it is true, then that means all the other promises are true too. And so I started noticing Psalm 34:18 says, "When someone is brokenhearted, the God moves in close and revives them in their pain." And I started recognizing that He was nurturing me. In those dark moments, he was holding on to us, even when we sometimes couldn't feel it, that somebody would call or there would be a text message or, you know, our friend Zane Kirkland there in Montgomery would show up at my door with something for us to eat in the in the worst moment when it seemed like the darkest of the darkest nights, there would be a little bit of light. And we just started holding on to those little moments of grace. And eventually God started ministering to us again and our faith started bouncing back. Neurosurgeon Lee Warren here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website wleewarrenmd.com. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. And you can learn more at meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversation content from guests on the Meeting House program and the Intersection podcast can be found in the Media Center at faithradio.org or meetinghouseonline.info, as well as through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, including iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Learn more when you visit the homepage. And through the Meeting House homepage, the Intersection Podcast is also available through the Media Center as well as through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there's a link to video content. Again, you can go to meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.